Hey there, y'all. Welcome back to Where the Dogwood Blooms. Today, Doug Gillis, president of the Carolina chapter of the American Chestnut Foundation, is joining me to discuss the American Chestnut Tree and ongoing efforts to restore the chestnut to its historic range. Doug has been a member of the American Chestnut Foundation since 2003. He serves in many capacities, including as members of the Chapters Committee and Promotion and Outreach Committee. He was born in Asheville, North Carolina. His ancestors from Buncombe and Madison counties date back to the mid-1700s. His father, Glenn Gillis, born in 1913 in Madison County, instilled interest in the American chestnut and Doug at a young age. He lives in Charlotte, North Carolina with his wife, Marcia. They were married in 1969 and have two daughters and three grandchildren. Doug is a woodworker and enjoys making handcrafted items from salvaged American chestnut wood. He writes articles about the American chestnut for the foundation's chestnut magazine and, the, and Eastbrow, its online newsletter. Doug knows a lot about the American chestnut, and I hope you'll pull up a chair and sit a spell while we talk about it. Hey there, Doug. How are you? All right, Casey. How are you? I'm good. I'm so glad that you're able to join me today. Glad to be here. So, Doug, can you tell me a little bit about... Um, your connection to the American Chestnut Tree Foundation and how you became involved in the organization? Yes, uh, currently I'm the president of the Carolinas chapter of the American Chestnut Foundation, which covers both North Carolina and South Carolina. And I've been a member of the organization since 2003. I joined because I wanted, after I retired, I wanted to get involved in some activities that uh, I could find some joy and pleasure in. I formerly was uh, assistant director of Charlotte DOT, and uh, you can imagine that was a lot of work, but I get out and get my hands dirty, work in the soil, plant trees, help cover the uh, American chestnut tree to recover. That's awesome. So what is the tactic that the foundation uses to help bring the tree back? We have a three-pronged effort called Three Bird Program. But one is to breed back cross chestnuts, and that's first crossing the uh, Chinese chestnut with an American chestnut to bring in blight resistance characteristics from the Chinese. We do three back crosses with pure Americans to strengthen the American characteristics and weed out the uh, Chinese characteristics, which are less desirable. And after about five generations, we do two intercross breedings as well. We have a tree that uh, theoretically is uh, resistant to blight. Uh, we also work with uh, State University of New York, their environmental science and forestry school. And uh, they are breeding a transgenic tree which has a wheat gene inserted into it and promise to be, promises to be very uh, resistant to the blight. We're waiting for deregulation on that tree so we can do more crossing of it with uh, wild Americans. And then a third approach is to use biocontrols like hypovirulence, which is a virus that uh, attacks the blight, weakens it, and then enables the tree to resist uh, devastation by the blight. So those are the three burrs uh, of the program that we're using 
with American Chestnut Foundation. That's amazing. So you're actually you're actually from Western North Carolina, right? Well, I was born in Nashville, and uh, father was in the military, so I left the mountains with family. And uh, two and a half years old, we went to Germany. Uh, we went to Fort Hood, Texas, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Lived in Nashville a short while during the Korean War, but ended up in Raleigh, North Carolina, when I was about 12, 11 years old, and moved into Chestnut Hills subdivision north of uh, North Hills in Raleigh. Had a chestnut tree in the front yard. It was a Chinese chestnut, and my father expanded the house by converting the carport into a den, and eventually that den was clad with wormy American chestnut from his uh, sister's farm up in Barnersville, North Carolina. So I grew up uh, right chestnut trees and chestnut wood in the den of our home. Did you grow up on the stories of the chestnut back in their heyday, too? Uh, yes. When I was about 11, father and brother and I went grouse hunting on his sister's farm in Barnardsville. And uh, it was a cold day and my feet were freezing, so was my brother. So we came upon a saw bill site. And there was a sawdust pile, and it was moldering, putting out heat from the rotting uh, sawdust. So he told us to go over there, dig holes, take our boots off, stick our feet down in the holes, warm them up. And while doing that, I was watching them walking around and looking at all these boards laying on the ground. And I asked him later what he was doing. He said, well, there's a lot of wormy chestnut planks laying on the ground. I won't make a deal with my brother-in-law and have some of that brought to Raleigh to put in our den. So he told me about the American chestnut. He was born in 1930 and 13 in uh, Madison County. And then by the time he left the mountains at age 33, the blight had started sweeping through and uh, devastating the American chestnuts in his area. But he knew the tree as a youth and a splendor. And then later, as it was uh, being attacked by the blight, and but he, he just told me what a good tree it was, timber tree, and was very important to the economy of the Carolinas uh, as he was growing up and even prior to that. I spent my early years in Haywood County, North Carolina, and my grandparents were both born in the 20s, and my, my great-papa was still alive. And they used to get around, and they would start telling stories, and I can remember them talking about gathering chestnuts and you know, the different things that they would use chestnut wood for and, you know, making fence posts. And and so I never got to experience that, you know, because I was I was born in the 80s. And by then, I believe the only chestnut trees I've ever seen have been like saplings. And I imagine they probably died off before they got big enough to create nuts. Uh, yes, they are still in the woods, despite the light. They will keep regenerating themselves. That's one great thing about the American chestnut. It just never seems to give up and re-sprouts from uh, root collars and root systems. So one thing we encourage people to do is learn how to identify the American chestnut. And that can be done by looking at the leaves. Uh, American Chestnut Foundation's website has a place on it where you can go and get a PDF file, download that, and have a lot of information about how to identify American chestnut, but people will find 
find them sometimes as big as eight inches in diameter, still living, not yet attacked by the blight, but ultimately uh, we found that blight will normally eventually get to them and kill them. But still, it's a it's a great joy to get out and look for them, find them, report them. Uh, if it's important, we can get pollen from them or scion wood from them because we use the scion wood to graft on the trees up at the Meadowview Farm in southwest Virginia just to help uh, conserve, conserve some of the genetics of the American chestnut trees in the Carolina area. What can you tell me about the American chestnut tree's history and its impact on culture here in North Carolina? Because I know you brought up, um, I know a lot about, you know, with with my own family, but you brought up the natives. And so I didn't know very much about the Cherokee and and how they used the tree. Well, they were here before the settlers came in and obviously benefited greatly from the tree because of the very reliable nut crop that came every year and would uh, help fatten up the bears and deer and turkey and grouse, which they hunted. So they benefited from that aspect of the nut mass, but also they used the nuts to uh, as food. Uh, they would also incorporate them in bread that they made. They would use it for medicinal purposes, uh, make teas out of it for treating coughs and digestion problems. So they had a lot of uses there. Uh, lodges sometimes were covered with chestnut bark because it was very rot resistant and shed the water well. They would also uh, use trees just to get the wood to create the frame for these lodges. Uh, I, I imagine even make bows out of them for hunting with. So they were here 10,000 years ago and settlers came in maybe in the 1600s, late 1600s, and started learning from the Cherokee about the uses of the wood and benefited uh, from them. You were also telling me about there were chestnut trees here in the Piedmont. You know, I never knew that. Oh, yes. They, unfortunately, were pretty well wiped out because of just clearing land and harvesting wood for log cabins. But a root rot came into the colonies uh, likely sometime in the late 1700s called root rot. Scientific name is Phytophthora cinnamomi. It first was introduced into Europe from Papua New Guinea on plant stock. And then uh, plant stock came from Europe into the colonies. And here in the Carolinas likely entered through Wilmington and, and maybe uh, one of the ports down in South Carolina. But it resides in the soil. It's a waterborne mold, and it attacks the root systems of the tree. Chestnut is very vulnerable to it. It'll kill it within a year, usually. But the root rot would spread uh, through farm implements, uh, sharing nursery stock, draft animals just getting it on the hooves and tracking it around and slowly just spread further and further inland. But it is a very uh, devastating pathogen in the United States and it attacks uh, hundreds of species, trees, shrubs, bushes. So it's a really big problem, but uh, it did probably by 18, 
75, uh, resulting in the loss of all of the chestnut trees in the Piedmont, with a few exceptions up on higher elevation Menadnocks, uh, such as Crowder's Mountain, South Mountains, and Kings Mountain, where the elevation is a little bit higher and, and the water table is not a problem. But we can still go up there and find chestnut trees growing. So will the new, the trees that the foundation is working on, are those also root rot resistant? Uh, yes, we're developing a root rot resistant tree and breeding that in with the blight resistant trees to incorporate both the resistances. Uh, Joe James in Seneca, South Carolina has a farm called Chestnut Return and he started the effort to find a way to breed in the root rot resistance into the chestnut. Again, Chinese chestnuts and other Asian chestnuts are resistant to root rot since it, it evolved with that pathogen. So he started a program, I think, as early as 2003 and, and financed most of the work himself for quite a while. And then later, the uh, American Chestnut Foundation realized that it really was a big issue if we were to be able to, again, plant out American chestnut trees in the Piedmont area. So they jumped in, and now we're helping uh, Joe and doing research also to further develop more resistance to the root rot into the American chestnuts. So right now, is it mainly research that's going on? Like, I've heard rumors that eventually we're hoping that these trees are going to be reintroduced into the wild, but right now that hasn't happened, right? Well, there are some test plots that have been planted in U.S. forest uh, three or four, and maybe as long ago as eight, ten years ago. So those initial efforts to introduce some of these backcross trees into the forest were done to just see how the trees would do over time, uh, if they could replicate themselves across each other. And so there are there are people tracking the results of those efforts. But it's a preliminary test to see what can be done. Once we do have a tree, which there'll be many varieties of, of the back cross, and then there'll be uh, this transgenic tree once it is approved and released, we hope, that can be used too for reforesting with chestnut trees in the woods that will have that early experience and then we'll be able to capitalize on that and then go about finding good places to reintroduce these hybrids and transgenic trees once approved into the forest and get some trees growing and see what the results are. So how are those patches doing so far, do you know? The ones in the experimental plantings in the forest are, they're doing okay. We are tracking them. I don't have specifics on just how, how well they're doing, but uh, the Yellow Mountains, I believe, is a location. Little Yellow Mountain is one place where some of these hybrids have been planted, and uh, our regional science coordinators led some hikes up there. So some of the trees are large enough, I'd say maybe as much as uh, six inches, and uh, in diameter and can 
be enjoyed by people who go up there and hike to, to look at. The tree will grow fairly fast in an open orchard area, but it'll grow a little slower in a woodland area where it has to compete with other trees that may be in the overstory. But eventually, the trees will get bigger and bigger over time. So are, are, is the public allowed to see the trees? Oh, yeah. The, uh, well, the ones in the plots in the U.S. forest, uh, I, I think we're just keeping those uh, undercover in a sense just so have any interference with the experimentation and, and the growing, but these I mentioned with uh, the hike that Jamie Van Cleef, our Southern Regional Science Coordinator, leads. Uh, yeah, she'll invite people to come on the hikes and come see them. And anywhere we have trees, we have orchards, for example, one up in Edneyville, North Carolina, Joe James's orchard down in Seneca, South Carolina. So if people are interested in looking at trees that are growing in orchards and we welcome people to do that. Usually they can see these trees by volunteering for plantings and orchard work where we need to do some maintenance. But if they just want to see the trees, we're going to arrange a trip just for folks to take a look at them. Are there any of those in the Piedmont yet? Well, let me think. We, down in Columbia, South Carolina, we have a planting that, uh, the W. Gordon Belser Arboretum, which is operated by the University of South Carolina. And there are uh, probably six or eight American chestnut trees uh, of the backcross variety that have been planted there. I'd looked at those uh, last spring, and I'd say they were probably six, six, seven inches in diameter. So that's one location we have some planted. Uh, there's uh, the planting in Hillsborough, North Carolina, across from the uh, town hall at a historic site. Last time I was there, several of the trees were doing okay. One was fairly large, about six inches in diameter. So these trees that are planted out in these locations as just demonstration trees are scattered around the state in various places. So anyone interested, we can... Try to get information to them where they may be able to go see them. Very cool. So uh, can the public plant, like, buy these and plant them for ourselves yet or no? The American Chestnut Foundation has two programs going. In the spring, they have a sale of wild American chestnuts. So people can get the experience of growing those taken care of. And then the hopes eventually if the transgenic tree is approved for release and get pollen from that tree and cross with the wild trees that they have planted. Uh, it may take five years or so for the, the trees that are planted as seedlings get large enough to start producing female flowers and catkins. But that's one of the efforts to get some wild Americans growing in people's yards where they take care of them, uh, tend to them. Also, if people join the organization at a seed-level membership, they will be rewarded with a number of these hybrid backcross seeds so that have resistance to both uh, root rot and tube blight, and then plant those and start taking care of those and learn how to tend to them. I love that. Do you, have, do you know if they grow in Fayetteville? It depends on soil conditions. That 
there is a historic record of some trees uh, down in the Fayetteville area. We we think maybe Native Americans planted. Those we're not sure. Started a little bunch down there. Uh, I don't think they survive now. But the American chestnut prefers a uh, well-drained, sandy, loamy-type soil that's slightly acidic. If that kind of soil exists, then it is possible to plant them and have some success with them growing. Uh, the trees don't do very well in a heavy soil that's wet or like clay or other dense soil. So it's a problem in some of the Piedmont just trying to find a good place to plant them, even though they did live in the Piedmont up until maybe the uh, 1875 era. Yeah, I thought maybe the sand hills might not be as accommodating as some of the other areas in North Carolina. <laughs> I would love to have one, though. So uh, the, the soil can be supplemented uh, with uh, organic matter if it's too sandy and then built up in a way that uh, perhaps could sustain some chestnut trees. I, I know the Asian-type trees will grow in the Piedmont quite well, but they're a lot more tolerant tolerant to different kind of soil conditions are there american chestnuts are there some still living like the bigger trees like you know mature trees are there any left in the united states oh yes uh, the, the trees functionally extinct however you can walk out into the woods here especially uh foothills and mountains of north carolina and south carolina and find them growing uh, and sometimes, you know, maybe as big as six, eight inches. Uh, but eventually the light gets them. So there's a few and far between. There's a lot of little saplings, like up to two, three, four inches that uh, are found. But the big ones are, are few and far between. Uh, one, uh, I, I go out to uh, the West Coast, uh, visit my daughter and her family in Portland, Oregon. And pioneers took American chestnut seed and seedlings west with them along the Oregon Trail and planted them as early as the, the uh, 1860s. So some of these trees are still living, uh, seven feet in diameter or, or so, and you can go out there and see them. So people, uh, people I know that have an opportunity to go out to the Portland area want to know where can I go see these trees and I'll let them know where they can go see some of the very big ones. So I have photos of like from my family back in the 20s, um, 1910s, and I have my family is very big into um, pulp mills and you know all that kind of stuff was in western North Carolina and so I have a lot of pictures of of them standing in front of cut down chestnut trees and um, standing in front of like still standing chestnut trees and they look huge. And so how big did they get? The, they would grow to over 100 feet tall uh, before the blight came in and typically be six, eight feet in diameter. The very largest one known, which was cut down, I believe it was near Waynesville, was 17 feet in diameter at the base. So that, that was an extremely large tree, but uh, them being six, eight, feet in diameter uh, wasn't was fairly common back in the late 1800s early 
20th century. Wow. I mean, that sounds to me almost like a redwood. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the chestnut has been referred to as the redwood of the East uh, because it's so prolific and tall and straight-tempered. It's a tall, growing, straight-tempered tree when it's in a forest and drops its limbs as it goes up. So it's uh, looks a little like redwood might when you're out in the uh, West Coast and see those. So the forest in here on the East Coast would look completely different if the tree was still here. Oh, definitely. Uh, especially at the time and the year when the catkins come out and the trees sending out male pollen. People back in the day would refer to how the snows, the, the uh, mountain crests were snow-capped. They were just looking up and seeing all of the yellowish white catkins uh, turning the uh, green into white. I bet that was beautiful. Oh, it, yeah, it was. Uh, you can find pictures of that and, and kind of appreciate that. So how far did the natural range run? Uh, it ran from maybe northern Florida, but more than Georgia, Alabama, all the way up to Maine, and then as far west as the uh, Mississippi River, Tennessee, also included uh, Ohio and Indiana, uh, West Virginia, all those states. So covered extensive area, and our historical records don't show much in the Piedmont because we uh, lost or don't have good records of that. Rick Rock kind of wiped all those trees out. I'm so sad that they're all gone. <laughs> it, bl it blows my mind because, I mean, to me, it's like a living legend in my mind, you know. Um, my kids had no idea that they even existed, but because I grew up primarily around my grandparents, um, you know, like I said, I grew up on tales of my great-grandma making, you know, chestnuts, uh, dressing and and then you know using the the shells for different things and all this kind of stuff and so um how hard is it going to be to bring these back to the wild like is is that an attainable goal well it's attainable but to get the very large trees we're probably talking about uh, getting them out in the woods and then maybe 50 years later being able to see trees that are uh uh, and maybe reached up to the canopy of the forest. They'll, they'll grow in a orchard setting and, and maybe get 20 feet tall in five years. So in a forest where they're competing, it, it's going to take much more time. But the, the idea is to get plots planted out with a fairly dense distribution of the trees and then let them grow up and hopefully... Uh, dominate the area eventually. The, the tree likes uh, open clearings. If there's a storm or something comes in and knocks down the other big trees like oaks or hickories and chestnut trees will jump up and start growing faster and start dominating that area uh, if it gets a chance. An example of that is along Blue Ridge Parkway where the clearing of the trees are done periodically to uh, keeps the sight lines open for people at the overlooks. But you can find chestnut trees that have sprouted up again and taken over and maybe being 15, 20 feet tall 
in the fall being full of nuts. So we'll actually harvest some of those nuts under permit to use in our research work. So will the, the nuts from the crossbred trees, are they going to taste the same as the American chestnut? Uh, yes, because the genetics of the back cross tree for the ones that are done properly should be as much as about 15 sixteenths American and 1 sixteenths Chinese. So it'll be a smaller nut, but a sweeter nut. The chestnut is a much sweeter nut than Chinese and uh, Japanese and even more sweet than the uh, what's called a sweet chestnut in Europe. Yeah, I make um I make chestnut dressing every now and then, and I've always said I mean it's it's pretty close to my mamma's recipe, but I'm not sure that it tastes exactly the same <laughs> because I don't have the chestnut she grew up right. with. Yeah. <laughs> so potentially, my grandchildren may be able to walk in a forest that has the American chestnut tree in. Yeah, potentially, um, <clears throat> and I mean they may be uh, you know, a couple feet in diameter. Or, somewhere along that line, but uh, they'll be able to see some trees if, if we're successful in this restoration effort that uh, are starting to dominate a particular area and uh, putting out nuts where they're crossing each other and producing the, the nuts that you can find them on the ground. And if you get there before the squirrels and the grouse and other animals beat you to the nuts. So is there any pushback about bringing the tree back? Well, this transgenic tree, there there's some concern about it, especially uh, with the Native American people and others that are just opposed to genetic trees being released in the wild. Uh, the issue, I think, with the Native Americans is more their indigenous rights to be able to maintain and care for their own lands and tribal lands and there's a concern that if the transgenic trees in the forest that it may over time cross with other chestnut trees and then eventually come into some of the Native Americans controlled lands. So that's a concern. And it's being looked at and addressed, and hopefully we'll get some accommodation where the tribal leaders of Native lands and those people that are like American Chestnut Foundation is trying to get the trees reestablished and come to some kind of agreement on how to proceed. Now, the tree, the transgenic tree, if approved can be placed out into uh, four settings under certain conditions. We don't know yet exactly what all that's going to mean and be, but there'll be some guidelines established for how we go about introducing the transgenic tree into the forest. Over time, if with the transgenic tree, did I say that right? Yes, it's... Uh, genetically modified American chestnut or the transgenic chestnut okay. tree. So, so over time, wouldn't that tree crossbreed with the other trees? 
um, eventually kind of nullifying the GMO factor there a little bit? Yes, if it if it crosses and whatever it crosses with, uh, half of the trees or half of the nuts would carry the uh, genetically modified genes, and then the other half would just be more typical wild American. Eventually, though, the trees that survive would have the transgenic gene in them because they have the resistance to to avoid the blight and attacks and be able to survive. The, the concern of the native people is, is that the tree will cross with other trees and then those trees on their land, they prefer that did not be introduced into the tribal lands. That they preferred, I think, to live with the land as it is, as, as opposed to uh, introducing modifications to genetic engineering and so forth into the uh, forest lands. Right. But my question is, is the transgenic tree, is is it a closer replica of the original trees, or is it um, going, to, or is it also like the back bread where it has uh, Chinese genes also? Now, the uh, transgenic tree has a wheat gene that is included into its DNA, and this wheat gene, which is a common uh, gene in, in uh, a lot of the plant world or replicates the nature of the uh, wheat gene, so it's uh, not an exotic thing that's put in an American chestnut. It's just wheat gene. And that's the only thing that uh, is inserted. So the tree, pretty much is almost pure wild American chestnut with wheat gene. So it will should grow and look like uh, American chestnut. We're still doing a lot of checking on that, just see the growth characteristics over time and how the modification may possibly affect the the growth of the tree, but those issues being addressed, but genetically it would be close to a, a wild American chestnut tree. That's amazing. I mean, just the fact that we could potentially bring back a tree that and bring it back almost exactly as it was, um, just through genetic modification, is pretty mind-blowing well it is and uh, we'll see how that goes there's a lot of <clears throat> genetic modifications going on elsewhere but this would be the first tree that could be approved for reeds planting back out into the forest so and possibly it could be a model for saving other species of trees that might be endangered that would be amazing so um, how long until you guys find out if it's been approved or not? Well, we hope it might be approved in the next year, but we're still monitoring what's going on with the uh, regulators, federal government agencies, and just hoping it'll be soon. <laughs> and who, what agency um, would need to approve? Uh, well, the U.S. Department of Agriculture is, is the main one. I think EPA is another one, and there is a third one, but I can't 
doesn't come to mind right now, but uh, three different agencies looking at the permit, the uh, application that was made by State University of New York, and still going through the process. It's been ongoing now for, I think, several years, but they're close to coming to a point of making a final decision about the release. Now, in the interim, though, under permit, we are doing some crossing of the transgenic tree with wild Americans. Uh, one example would be uh, to introduce root rot resistance into the transgenic tree because it does not have resistance to root rot just to the chestnut blight. So under permit, we're doing some crosses to produce seed that should have both the transgenic uh, weed gene inserted as well as incorporating genes for resistant to root what can we what can regular folks who aren't involved what can we do to help well we encourage people to join the american chestnut foundation and get involved with volunteer activities uh, work in orchards help plant trees uh, also just paint some trees through the american chestnut foundation through the spring sale, start planting, get the experience of working uh, with a tree and keeping it healthy and alive. Even though the blight's around, there's a way of techniques for doing that. Should we be writing to our senators or to our congressmen and, and trying to push for reintroduction? Well, I, some of that's already been done with the uh, transgenic tree and just... From, and that's going to the agents, agencies involved instead of to the political people. The American Chestnut Foundation will ask from time to time if it's important to try to get federal funding for certain projects uh, to contact leaders. But I, I think people ought to take, if they're a member of the American Chestnut Foundation, just wait until they're asked by an organization like the American Chestnut Foundation uh, to get involved somehow. But it would be better for people just to learn about the American Chestnut and uh, promote it by helping sponsor speaking engagements. We, we do a number of garden club speaking engagements and Dr. Uh, D.A.R., speaking engagements, uh, Rotary Club speaking engagements. We go to schools, uh, junior highs, high schools, community colleges, but all that's to just educate people, help them appreciate the American chestnut and get an interest in the American chestnut. So we encourage people to do that. Also just to learn about the tree, learn how to identify it, get out in the woods, uh, hike, find them, identify them, report them back to the American Chestnut Foundation so we can be aware of where they are and the ones that are some size and flowering and producing us. We're certainly interested in tracking those as well. I think the last time I saw one was probably in Swain County when I was a little girl and my daddy pointed it out. And I'm pretty good at plant identification. I don't know if I could identify one so I'll have to get on the website and look it up. 
Yeah, I'm really big into plant identification of all kinds. Everybody picks on me because we'll be hiking through the woods and I'll be like, oh, look, <laughs> <laughs> there's ramps over there. You know, there's a, a birch tree here. Right. <laughs> that example of identification, uh, people ought to go on the American Chestnut Foundation website. It's tacf.org and look for the on that home page, uh, have you found a chestnut? And click on that and then drill down and find the files that have very good information on identifying American chestnut. So you can learn quite a bit just on your own, but if you're curious about a particular tree, there's also information on the website about how to collect samples, leaves, burrs, uh, nuts, send those into the organization to get the uh, tree you're interested in identified. I think that there's probably a lot of interest in the tree. Um, I wrote a blog post about the tree probably probably a few weeks ago. And um, I don't have a, a huge following, but I have a, a decent one. And they're, they're very interactive. And a lot of people commented and asked questions about it. So I feel like there's a lot of people interested. I just don't think they know how to get involved. I found that to be the case, too. I just randomly sometimes will talk to someone when I'm on a hike or somewhere in the mountains, and it's always surprised me how they have some knowledge of the tree, and uh, a lot of that comes maybe from past generations, but also just a innate curiosity about what's happening and interest in an organization that is dedicated towards bringing back the American chestnut tree. And often uh, I encourage them to get involved and go a little further, and some folks do that. I mean, I think it's amazing, you know, my great-grandparents going all the way back. I mean, I have some of my ancestors were the earliest settlers, and, you know, Buncombe and Haywood, Madison County, Swain County, and, you know, this tree was basically obliterated by what 19 the 1950s uh, um, yeah so and and people still talk about it I, I mean i know we're storytellers in western north carolina but you know uh, still to this day people talk about it i've told my children about it you know and so it's passed down just by word of mouth and so i think it's great that there's a foundation out there who's trying to bring that back to to the culture well it's a good opportunity for people to get involved in an organization that they can have some passion about. I, currently, we have maybe 450 members in the Carolinas. Uh, and then up and down the East Coast, all of the 16 state chapters may have as much as 6,000 volunteers. American Chestnut Foundation has a relatively small staff, and a lot of the work is done by volunteers. Obviously, we have partners different corporations and universities and help with the research work, but uh, a lot of it is based on what volunteers do. Volunteers can make a huge difference. Oh, they definitely do. Kind of drive the organization that's work. That's, I wish I lived somewhere that was a little better suited for it. <laughs> <laughs> so where where is it you're located? So I'm in Fayetteville. Okay. Yeah, my family, uh, my father's family is from Western North Carolina. My mama's family is from Eastern North Carolina. 
and then I married a Cumberland County boy, so now I'm in Fayetteville, but I'm always saying I hope one day to get back to the mountains and, you know. Right. <laughs> I, spent, I, I need to balance it out. I spent most of my life at the beach. Now I want to go spend the rest, you know, in the hills and reconnect with my inner mammal. <laughs> <laughs> so where can we follow the American Chestnut Foundation online? I, I know that you guys have a website. What else is there? Primarily, it is is a website for uh, the American Chestnut Foundation, TACF.org. But on that site, you can go to the Carolinas chapter and click on that and then get information more specific about what is happening in the Carolinas. Now, we are currently building our uh, social media presence through our uh, web administrator, Kimberly Greenwood. Excuse me, Kimberly Greenway in uh, Asheville. So she's putting together an effort to have more of a social media presence. But you can find, uh, for example, archives of the Chestnut Magazine, uh, the East Sprout Magazine, Chestnut Chats. There's just a whole lot of information on that website that uh, people can search out and find and learn more about the American Chestnut. I write articles for the Chestnut Magazine myself and for the East Sprout, and these Chestnut Chats are formally done by the, uh, led by the staff of the American Chestnut Foundation, but they include a lot of good information about the breeding programs, the status of the transgenic American Chestnut trees, and just a whole lot of really good information. All right, so I know you guys are at least on Twitter because I, I, I'm pretty sure I follow you guys on Twitter. Uh, yes, uh, our chapter working on that, but the American Chestnut Foundation has Twitter, so they also have a Facebook site that can be found, you know, by going to the uh, homepage of the American Chestnut Foundation website and finding the uh, Facebook information, Twitter, and other accounts. So is the whole foundation centered here in North Carolina, out of Asheville? Yeah, the headquarters is in Asheville, uh, 50 North Merriman Avenue, not too far from the center of town. And so that's the headquarters. The uh, research farm, Mattaview, is in southwest Virginia. And... Then we have all the state chapters up and down the East Coast and up toward the Mississippi River area. I love that. That was so. Was it founded here? Uh, it, the organization was founded in nineteen, and we're celebrating our fortieth year. But it initially, uh, the headquarters was up in uh, New England area, and then. Maybe, I'd, I'd say, in 15 years ago or so, it was relocated more centrally to Asheville, North Carolina, and has been there I since. That. Yep. I, I'm the cheerleader of North Carolina. That's all I talk about and do. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that it's here. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciated it. I'm hoping that it'll encourage people to get involved. I would love for my grandchildren to be able to walk through the woods and, you know, it's all the back from the chestnut tree. 
Uh, so. Yeah, the only other thing I'd add is uh, I, I appreciate the wood itself, and uh, people can find uh, log cabins sometimes to go visit, walk in and see chestnut wood that was, for example, Ann Springs Close Greenway uh, down near Fort Mill, South Carolina, has a cabin called the Graham Cabin, which uh, just evidence that there were chestnut trees in the Piedmont area it was built around 1780 and then relocated to the Greenway by, I think it was 1999 but sits there on the Greenway property so that's a good place you can go see that uh, there are other for example here in Charlotte uh, Sanctuary of Hawthorne Lane United Methodist Church has chestnut wood and a vaulted ceiling and handling the Presbyterian church up at uh, uh, Montreat has pews, just hundreds of pews built of American chestnut wood. So I seek out places like that. I hope on the chapter's website we list out some of these locations, just give people opportunity to go see the wood and get an appreciation for it just by being able to touch it, feel it, and to see is what wonderful it is. Is there a way to identify the wood? Is that on the website? I'm not sure if it's on the website, but it the the way to identify the wood, it, it looks similar to oak. It's more open grain because it's grows faster normally. But people want to know how do I tell the difference in American chestnut wood and oak. And the way to do that is to get a very clean cut across the end grain. And oak, you will see these uh, rays coming out from the center of the tree, cutting across the annual growth rings. Very obvious. In the American chestnut, you can't visually see that with your eye. The, the rays are there, but they're so small, they're just not evident. Uh, you can get a magnifying glass and maybe see them, but otherwise... You can't. So that's one good way to, to differentiate the American chestnut from oak. In fact, I'm sitting at the table. I've got my phone propped on. It came from my grandmother's house uh, in Asheville. I think she bought it maybe when she and her husband got married in 1910. But it's a nightstand. And I refinished it. When I refinished it, I said, this is American chestnut. I thought it was a walnut given all the dark color it had on it. But uh, so I verified the fact it was by looking at the end grain on it. Very cool. There is actually, um, there was a lot of American chestnut furniture in Western North Carolina. And when you brought up the uh, cabin, it made me wonder my great papa, um, his barn is still standing. And that barn is probably. Closing in on a hundred years old. I mean, it's it's old and it's still standing. So now I'm wondering if it's made of American chestnut or not. There, there is a possibility. It is there. There are salvagers that uh, will go down. Well, go about tearing down barns and structures and salvaging the chestnut wood out of those uh, structures, even though maybe the barn wasn't was built. Uh, hundred years ago, or even maybe sooner than that. Uh, guy in 
I think it's near Sugar Grove, uh, west of Boone area that I visited years ago. I think his name was Bill Harmon. And he had barn full, a barn full of salvage American chestnut wood. He had been salvaging since he returned from the Korean War. So, and he would barter with people and dicker with people to uh, get a good deal to sell some of it. But I'm, I'm wondering, I need to go by and see him again. <laughs> I'll be heartbroken if somebody tears down Papa Cochran for that. Well, I, that you bring it up, I kind of like a table made out of it. <laughs> oh yeah, there's uh, it's a very prized wood, and then finding uh, large pieces of it is a little bit of a problem. There's a lumber company here in Charlotte. I'll go to if I, I need some. I've, I've got quite a bit of handling that I salvage from my mother's father's home there in Raleigh, North Carolina. But it's all like three quarter inch wood. And if I need something larger, I'll go to this lumber company and see if they have some. And sure enough, I found there some wood stock that was uh, like four to six inches thick. Very, very rare find, but where they are able to get their hands on that kind of wood, I guess it comes out of a structure sometime. But they'll salvage it and use it for making specially pieces for folks that want uh, either cabinets made of American chestnut or some other piece of furniture. I, I bet that costs a pretty penny. My oh, husband, yeah. Just, my husband does cabinet work, and I can imagine how, how expensive American chestnut would be. Well, uh, just a board foot of raw wood on finishes about $8 minimum. So, and something that's really big and thick obviously the board feet then a piece like that increases significantly the thicker it is but uh yeah, you'll pay quite a bit to get some lumber but there are people willing to do that uh oh i wish i had that kind of money all the cabinets in my house all right, Doug, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you doing this with me. I had been reaching out for about a week or two, and so I didn't know if this was going to happen or not. So I'm, this is awesome. I think everybody's going to love it. Okay, well, yep. And how how might I hear about it? Or I'll, I, can send, I can send you a link, or if you want to, I'm on Spotify. I'm on Apple Podcasts. Um, I'm on Twitter. But, yeah, I'll send you a link. Okay. I'll know what you miss it. So right in this, uh, the people interested in getting back in touch with me, uh, they can do that through. I have a uh, chapter email site, and it's uh, tacf.carolinas at gmail.com. Excellent. Awesome. Thank okay. you so much for, for joining me today. Well, you're welcome, Cassie. All right, y'all, we're out of time. I'll be back next Wednesday with John Snyder to talk about the proposed North Carolina Compassionate Care Act and medical marijuana. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss it. And if you're looking for more content, you can always head over to the blog at www.wherethedogwoodblooms.com. Y'all stay safe and I'll talk to you soon.